Welcome to Frankly Speaking About Family Medicine, a CME podcast series where each week we translate today's late-breaking clinical research and news into tomorrow's practice. I'm Dr. Frank Domino, professor in the Department of Family Medicine and Community Health at the University of Massachusetts Chan Medical School and editor-in-chief of the 5-Minute Clinical Consult. Be sure to visit primed.com slash podcast after the discussion for more information about today's article and to claim CME CE credit. Hi, this is Frank Domino, the host of Frankly Speaking About Family Medicine. As we have now had over one and a half million downloads of our podcast, I and our team would like to spend a few minutes reflecting on 2021 and determine and chat a bit about what we think our favorite podcasts were. You probably have your own, but I think when our team reflects, it's a really insightful time for us to say, huh, did I say stuff that was relevant and pertinent and is it going to persist or was it something that was just happening in the short term? So, um, Susan, yes. what, was your, uh, what, was your, what was your podcast of the year? Well, they were, they were, I, I, first of all, I love doing this. This is such a, a privilege. But um, the one that I, I really liked was because um, it was it was fairly simple. It really was looking at distress caused by type 2 diabetes and the fact that you can improve outcomes by decreasing distress through mindfulness. And I know a lot of people might go, oh dear, I can't believe we're talking about this. But it's so, it's so simple. And I, what I loved about it was, you know, we have this whole armamentarium of, of medications and things. And yet, for most people, right, who have type 2 diabetes, the most important thing is diet and exercise and weight loss. And it's so difficult. And people walk around with this burden of feeling guilty and distressed by it. And, you know, Food is something you have to deal with all day long, every day. And so every time there's a choice, there's a lot of distress. So there was this study that looked at, it was actually a meta-analysis of many studies, and it looked at um, various types of mindfulness activities from specifically, you know, trying to retrain people's negative thoughts to actually stress reduction, just general stress reduction. And they found pretty much across the board that when you could get people mindfully engaged and take away some of those negative thoughts about, well, I had a donut, I might as well just, you know, eat donuts the rest of the day. You know, if you could give them some empowerment of feeling, you know, let's take away those negative thoughts, they actually could reduce their A1C. They could have, in other words, it's about control. And we know this, right, when we people do home blood pressure monitoring, home glucose monitoring, people get better because they have some control. But I love this because what they said is about a third of people with diabetes, type 2 diabetes, have diabetes-related distress, and it's probably more than that, because I don't think how many of us are actually testing that in our office. But to give people sort of control back was so simple. And these are things like using those like the Calm app or the, you know, Mindspace or, or even just getting, you know, like going on YouTube and listening to relaxation. And it has to, it could be like 10, 15 minutes and, you know, mindful eating and all of that, but giving them the power to do this. It just was so, so simple and so powerful. And it's, cause that's really what it's about, right? Diet, exercise, and feeling, you know, feel like you have some, some uh, power over what's going on in your life. If the study solely, solely showed that the patients were more 
peaceful and less stressed, that'd be good. The study showed that they actually improve their That's diabetes right. parameters. That's right. Yeah. That's right. And, and that many times, of course, when you take this distress out, they've also become depressed. So it also probably helped in the long run is decreasing anxiety and depressive symptoms as well. Yeah, it was incredibly powerful. Jillian, you did a, a podcast on uh, continuous glucose monitoring. Did they talk at all about any improvements with people knowing their numbers? Yeah, and part of the study there was, um, part of the studies that I had looked at there was um, measurements on quality of life and patient satisfaction. And so patients who ended up using continuous glucose monitoring for type 2 diabetes had an improvement in their quality of life and an improvement in their overall satisfaction of their care. And I think that just comes from the, like there's just not as much stress over it, right? Because they have the information, they have the control, and it just makes managing their disease and then therefore their life that much easier. I tried for about a week to just, I don't have diabetes, but I tried to do finger sticks on myself <laughs> twice a day. Oh, it's awesome. And, and it became this thing, like, oh, I gotta go prick my finger. And, and it, it was so funny, I developed finger prick anxiety. Um, <laughs> As if I needed another. Uh, you need another hobby. <laughs> we have an app for that. We have an app for that. <laughs> Alan, speaking of my, my cognition, want to talk a little bit about your, your, sure. your, your favorite podcast of the year? So my favorite podcast of this past year was one we did on gluten-induced neurocognitive impairment. Mm -hmm. And so in full disclosure, one of the reasons it was one of my favorites was I was one of the authors of the paper. <laughs> So, a little bias there. Um, for those who don't know, I'm uh, the chair of a national uh, patient advocacy group for people with celiac disease called Beyond Celiac, and we funded this research, and I was involved in the uh, work of getting it published. And what it was was it was an online survey of people with, who either had celiac disease or non-celiac gluten sensitivity, and we were asking them to uh, give feedback on whether or not they had neurocognitive symptoms when they got exposed to gluten. And there are about 1,100 people who responded to the survey. 80% of them were people with celiac disease, and about 20% were people with non-celiac gluten sensitivity. And of the people who responded, about 90% uh, reported having some type of neurocognitive symptoms. And when you talk to patients, they will refer to this as brain fog. And this is similar to what patients describe who are on chemotherapy. They'll say, I have chemo fog. Or patients with fibromyalgia will say, I have fibro fog. And it's a constellation of symptoms. You don't have to have all of them, but there's enough of these that interfere with cognitive functioning. And so in our uh, research, difficulty concentrating was reported by about 72%. Forgetfulness was in about 60%. Feeling groggy, also about 60%. A feeling of detachment in about half. And mental confusion in about 45%. Most significantly, about 60% of the respondents said the symptoms last a, a day or two or longer. And so this isn't something that's brief for 15 or 20 minutes. It's something that really impacts people's functioning. And so... You know, this, I, what was important about this work was not that you should think 90% of your patients have neurocognitive impairment. You can't 
judge prevalence from an online survey. But what you can say is, if without a lot of effort, we got approximately 1,000 people reporting these symptoms, that there's a lot of that out there. And people tend to think of celiac disease primarily as a gastrointestinal disorder. And there are a lot of extra-intestinal manifestations. And the neurocognitive ones are especially important. These are not the only neurologic symptoms that you can have with celiac disease. Celiac disease can lead to certain types of seizure disorders. There's gluten-induced ataxia. But those are sort of more well-studied, and they're much less common. This, you know, if you talk with patients of celiac, who have celiac disease or non-celiac gluten sensitivity, get in the habit of asking them about neurocognitive symptoms. That's really the message of the paper. Was there any information about, oops, you know, I slipped and I ate something that's contaminated, I feel terrible, anything that can help the, resolve some of the fog? Is it increased hydration, some acetaminophen or ibuprofen? Yeah. So the paper wasn't designed, uh, the research, uh, the survey wasn't designed to ask about that, uh, really just uh, getting people to describe their symptoms and how, what the impact on their uh, functioning in their life was. But I can tell you, at least from my, uh, my experience in, in talking with people, there really isn't anything that helps. You know, Tylenol can help a little bit, but that fogginess, the feeling like I'm in a cloud, it just takes time to resolve. Wow. Very, very interesting. Well, thank you. Um, in addition to me being distressed and having some cognitive impairment, Jill, can I also have GERD. Can you tell me about your favorite <laughs> podcast of the year? You absolutely could call it. And it's hard to pick your favorite podcast. I almost it wanted is. to change my mind and throw a monkey wrench towards you, but I, uh. <laughs> but I wouldn't do that, Frank. So, yeah, I talked about um, basically GERD, which, you know, is such a common condition. And if you think about it, if you've been in practice as long as we have, um, if you had a patient with GERD, you weren't treating them before they had an endoscopy of some sort, right? Mm -hmm. But now we have over-the-counter medications, so people are treating themselves. But what this podcast was about was looking at the nurse's uh, health study too, which is the gift that keeps on giving. Mm -hmm. And it was a, you know, looking prospectively, they had, you know, they, they obviously have them fill out questionnaires on regular basis. So that took the data from 2005, 2009, 2013, and 2017. And it was uh, 43,000 women between the ages of 42 and 62. And what they found is the end result is that there are five factors that lower the risk of GERD in women. And it is, some of this is not surprising, a normal BMI, never smokers, moderate to vigorous exercise, which is greater than 30 minutes a day, no more than two cups of coffee, tea, or soda a day, which Sanjeev Dr. Chopra would, never, would have a fit, know. yeah. yeah. <laughs> and he would not go for that. And then a prudent diet. And what they meant by a prudent diet is rich in fruits, vegetables, nuts, whole grains, legumes, and low-fat dairy products, fish, and lean cuts of meat. And they adjusted their models and everything. And so the thing is, if you had all of these basically factors, all five, you were in check, you never had GERD and you probably aren't going to get GERD. And so it really does behoove us as, you know, providers to counsel people on their lifestyle and their diet because it can prevent GERD. Mm -hmm. So, and you know, you can look at all that and say, God, that is a lot to do. You know, it's hard to do all that.
but you know, it is, it's a lifestyle. And in this podcast, we had Jamie, who's a nurse, and in, in this podcast, she's pre-diabetic, and, but you know, she's, you know, work is a struggle, she's, you know, uh, COVID is a struggle on our patients and us, and you know, she's managed to lose five pounds because she knows she's pre-diabetic. So we are gonna champion that and tell her how great that is and how great she's doing. And I don't care if I don't see her for a year and she loses another five pounds or three pounds, it's all, uh, it's all positive. And so anything that she can do to change any of those factors so she doesn't have GERD. Yeah. I mean, and then there's the other things that go along with it. Not eating right before you go to bed and then laying down and things like that. But, um, but they showed that these, if you have these five factors, you probably are not going to have GERD. Wow. Which is such a common condition. And, you know, people do rush and stop and take a pill frequently. But there are plenty of other cultures where taking a pill to solve a problem is, is frowned upon and mm-hmm. doing things to take care of yourself is, is considered paramount. So I, it's a really important study because it reminds us all that we need to not just go ahead and treat it, we need to go ahead and encourage people to change themselves. So very good. Um, my favorite podcast of the year builds on Jillian's podcast from earlier today. It was when the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force issued their draft recommendation no longer recommending aspirin for the primary prevention of cardiovascular outcomes. Um, Since 2019, we've had really good data that shows using aspirin, while it was effective at lowering myocardial infarctions um, and probably stroke, it also raised the risk of GI bleeds. In preparing for the podcast, I had to really delve into that data. And it turned out that the number needed to treat by using 81 milligrams of aspirin for the primary prevention of heart disease in those 40 to 59 was 265. You had to treat 265 people um, to prevent one additional myocardial infarction. But the number needed to harm the harm being a major GI bleed, not a little bit of GERD, but a major GI bleed was 210, meaning that the harms exceeded the benefits. And there was no mortality benefit. So we've had this data for years, and the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force finally came in line with the American College of Cardiology and really recommended, at best, shared decision-making around the use of aspirin from those 40 to 59 and really recommended against it for thereafter. And I think this has probably been, outside of the COVID discussion of 2021, this has been the biggest practice change in, in, of my year. So it, I found it helpful. Other people find it as well? Yes. Yeah. yeah. You know, it, it is obviously very significant. One of the things it highlights, though, is when you're hearing about various studies, reducing heart attacks is not the, the strongest of outcomes. We used to think that as a, a uh, hard outcome. But now that we have these very sensitive troponins, you can diagnose something that gets called a heart attack that really has minimal impact on the patient's functioning. Mm-hmm. And so, you can, again, gets to a little bit of overdiagnosis. But you, you really, if you can't find mortality data, you have to be a little more careful of just, is this really a significant outcome that the paper is reporting? 
Um, one of my specialist friends down in Philadelphia likes to call those, uh, it's not really a heart attack, it's just an enzyme leak. Yeah. Yes. yeah. <laughs> Broke a little. Um, my buddy Bob Baldor couldn't join us, but I asked him what his favorite podcast of the year that he did was when it around the use of aspirin, uh, use of um, ACE inhibitors compared to ARBs. So this was a, a very large review of the literature to say, are ACE inhibitors more effective at preventing heart outcomes in patients like who post-MI, those with heart failure, stroke, and combined cardiovascular endpoints. And it turned out that ARBs were just as effective mm -hmm. as ACE inhibitors in all of those circumstances, with the exception of one, which was adverse events, where ACE inhibitors had higher rates of adverse events compared to ARBs. They were adverse for anything from cough to angioedema to impeding, uh, having some numerical impact on renal function. And so um, this was practice changing for me. I don't know what it was for you, but I started switching people. I say, oh, are you coughing on your lisinopril? Well, yeah, I've got a dry cough, which drives my partner crazy. Awesome, let's just switch you to an ARB. They're finally very inexpensive and generic, and they're just as effective. Mm -hmm. um, anyone else started making any switches with this? Not, yeah. What you yeah. have, Susan? Yeah. My yeah. husband. It, 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 it's <laughs> it's uh, simple and easy, and, and uh, I, I really found that paper, like the aspirin paper, to be one that uh, I was highly effective, mm -hmm. highly effective in my practice. Any parting thoughts for the day, team? Was it, was it? Any parting thoughts for the day? A lot of these things, like the ACE-ARB discussion or the warfarin-DOAC discussion, uh, so much of this is driven by cost. Mm -hmm. you know, why, were, why were ARBs more restricted when they first came out? Because we had generic ACE inhibitors and they were cheap. Yeah. And, and again, whether you're talking about direct cost to patients or the cost of an, to the insurance company, which ultimately comes back into the cost of premiums, um, there's a lot of new drugs that come out that uh, are better and then balancing that, at those aspects that are better versus the added cost is, is something that's a continual challenge. Yep. On, the, on the other hand, one of my favorite quotes is that it's important to use new drugs when they first come out while they still work. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, on that note, um, the podcast team and I would like to wish all our listeners uh, happy 2022. I hope we have less covid more time together, and hopefully be able to gather for outstanding meetings like the PrimeMed East meeting. Thank you all for listening. Join us next time when we talk about the best evidence to support managing acute and chronic gout. Thank you for listening to Frankly Speaking About Family Medicine, brought to you by PrimeMed. To claim credit and receive additional information about the article referenced in today's episode, visit primed.com slash podcasts and see you next week.